0: are listening to a podcast from The National. Begging for war. Those were the words used by Washington's top diplomat to the United Nations in describing Pyongyang's actions. After what proved to be a significantly more belligerent week than normal for North Korea, U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley said that the yet untested Kim Jong-un is forcing America's hand.
1: Enough is enough. We have taken an incremental approach, and despite the best of intentions, it has not worked.
0: If tensions continue to rise, the world could find itself in the midst of a nuclear war. The majority of officials in Washington are old enough to remember the Cold War against the Soviet Union, and the fear of what it meant for two countries to be a push of the button away from mutually assured destruction. But that isn't stopping anyone. Regardless of the reasons, this probably has very little to do with the usual guises for America to go to war, fighting for democracy, freedom, or defending the world from some evil presence. Haley said war is not something the United States wants, but that's because war is what the president needs. Anyone who looks at America's track record in war will soon realize a simple truth in Washington, that wars win elections. In the history of American politics, there has never been a wartime president who ran for reelection and lost. Madison, Lincoln, Wilson, Roosevelt, Johnson, Nixon, and Bush, all wartime presidents, all re elected for a second term. Trump might have also recognized that truth. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Nasal Wesmi, and today I'm joined by Rob Crilly, one of our writers who's been reporting on what might be the build up to another war in South Korea. Rob, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. How serious is this threat, Rob?
2: Well, this is the most um, serious uh, we've seen things um, since going back to the 1990s. You have a president in Donald Trump who has made no secret of his frustration with the diplomatic process and who has ratcheted up the language at every possibility. So although we are seeing attention focusing to the United Nations and its efforts to tougher sanctions, this is an unpredictable president in the U.S., Uh, And I think there is a feeling that even though war is in no one's interest, the further this pressure is ramped up, the more possible it is um, that a mistake is made, a line is overstepped, or we end up in a situation that we wouldn't have chosen.
0: So you mentioned Trump, and he's a main actor in this. Is he sending mixed signals to their allies, South Korea? Apparently, the American president is considering pulling out, not, not even negotiating the free trade agreement with the country.
2: Yes. I mean, Donald Trump is finding that his various um, election promises are sometimes in conflict with each other. And he hasn't done a very good job of finding those gray areas to balance all those different demands. So, for example, we know throughout the campaign, he talked about putting American workers first and essentially was seeking a more protectionist set of trade policies. He he has talked about pursuing that uh, with South Korea, uh, pulling out of agreements in order to protect American workers. Now, the problem with that is uh, Mr. Trump really needs the support of South Korea. He needs to be working with them, along with uh, the Japanese and other regional allies, in order to keep up. Uh, the pressure on North Korea. I mean, it is entirely possible that North Korea's nuclear test at the weekend was designed as a way of trying to drive a wedge between America and its different allies. And one theory is that Donald Trump has rushed straight into that trap.
0: Rob, is North Korea different than the other countries that the US have gone to war with before? I mean, North Korea, for all intents and purposes, does actually have nuclear bombs could that be more of a deterrent to uh, go to war with what is often referred to as an unpredictable country?
2: Absolutely, and that is the calculation that the North Koreans have clearly made. They have nuclear weapons. I mean, their program now is designed towards trying to uh, shrink those weapons and to perfect its missile technology and targeting technologies in order to produce a weapon that could actually attack the mainland U.S., But at the moment, we know they have um, the capability of detonating nuclear weapons. So any uh, strike uh, on North Korea, whether it's conventional or nuclear, would almost certainly bring a huge uh, response and retaliation against South Korea, which, I mean, um, Seoul is well within striking range of North Korea, the US military bases in the region. So, The problem is that any military strike the U.S. launches uh, would likely lead to the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of South Koreans.
0: And I mean, talking about uh, testing missiles, they tested one uh, over the Japanese islands last week, I believe. Uh, Shinzo Abe has expressed concern. So really, this is a regional crisis. But I mean, what does this mean for for, uh, uh, Asia? I mean, and why now?
2: North Korea, um, intelligence analysts will tell you it's the hardest of hard targets and very little intelligence comes out. It's difficult to understand the exact working uh, of uh, um, the North Korean regime. But certainly what we know is that the North... North Koreans believe nuclear weapons are essential to the survival, not just of the country, but of the regime. Um, uh, uh, Officials have talked repeatedly about Saddam Hussein, Colonel Gaddafi, and the way that when they gave up their nuclear programs, the leadership became vulnerable. So it seems clear that the North Koreans are, are, are racing to get as far ahead as they possibly can. With their nuclear and missile technology in order to um, bed in to make sure they can hold on to their nuclear weapons as part of any settlement that comes. It's a hugely unpredictable regime. And uh, Japan and, and South Korea have made clear that they really need all the help they can get from the United States um, in order to protect themselves.
0: So, South Korea came out with their own test this week. Uh, and you're talking about the need for help, but are are they likely to go to war on their own?
2: It's very difficult to see that. They um, they have ramped up their own uh, rhetoric. We've just had a tweet, actually, from Donald Trump in the past few minutes, um, rather trying to get back on side with Japan and South Korea. He's just tweeted, I'm allowing Japan and South Korea to buy a substantially increased amount of highly sophisticated military equipment from the United States. So Trump, having given mixed signals, is is now trying to say he is fully on board with his local allies. Um, But the the problem is, obviously, Japan and and South Korea don't have um, the sort of nuclear capacity that North Korea has. So, again, they would be at a huge disadvantage were they to take their own unilateral action against North Korea.
0: At a time when the United States uh, president seems to be really un- unpredictable, uh, a lot are looking to China to kind of step up and uh, take that leadership role. And it's always, in the case of North Korea, kind of acted like a, like an older brother. So what is Beijing's reaction right now and how, m- how might that reflect on the region?
2: Well, China, um, as we know from the way it's dealt with um, other diplomatic crises around the world, is generally not keen to get involved in moralizing. It goes about its business and expects its partners to deliver on trade or whatever promises are made without bringing morals into it. Now, on this occasion, um, China condemned North Korea's uh, nuclear test at the weekend. They have gradually stepped up um, their own uh, limits on, on trade, Uh, with North Korea, they've generally done it um, more slowly than the US and its allies would like. And the latest talk now is of an oil embargo on North Korea, which again, China would be absolutely crucial to implementing because um, North Korea is entirely reliant on China for its its energy needs and a a lot of other things. So I think there is a, a grudging acceptance it seems in Beijing that something has to be done. I mean, the last thing China wants is a destabilizing presence in its own backyard, but at the same time, it's generally its default position is to do as little as it as it can. So it's trying to it's trying to balance, on the one hand, keeping peace in its neighbourhood, and on the other hand, um, not interfering in other countries as much as it can.
0: Will this be a headlighting topic at the United Nations General Assembly next week?
2: Um, almost certainly. Um, I mean, we. Um, There was an emergency meeting yesterday to discuss um, further sanctions. That's going to go on all week. Russia has signaled it doesn't think that's a productive way ahead. I mean, Vladimir Putin has just said they'd rather eat grass in North Korea than uh, give up their nuclear weapons. So, as ever, there are um, divides at the United Nations Security Council. And so, I mean, every year, When the General Assembly comes around, um, we always look to see what the big um, international crisis is, uh, which will dominate discussion, and this time, inevitably, is going to be North Korea.
0: The Korean peninsula isn't the only place that's experiencing talk of war. Things are heating up between Hezbollah and Israel. After 11 years of relative quiet since the 2006 war, the U.S. is sounding an alarm on a conflict between the two sides. Again, Nikki Haley seems to be the one drumming it up. She said, quote, The clouds of war are gathering. Hezbollah are preparing for war. Now, Israel is responding with a 10-day military exercise that might just spell out the possibility as being more than just an alarmist call to arms. Luna Safwan is a reporter in Beirut, and I'm joined by her today. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Luna, military exercise can just be military exercises, right? What makes this one special?
1: Um, Well, for for Lebanon, being here and living here, we've we've always been familiar with with these types of exercises happening. Um, All of the time, we read in the news and we hear that um, a war is about to start soon with Israel at any point um so these exercises are something that we're sort of familiar with they don't surprise the Lebanese much but the timing um is a bit weird I would say uh possibly because um, lately there has been a lot of developments uh, in Lebanon uh, with hezbollah specifically uh being involved in uh, the trade that happened maybe recently uh in Ashal and in uh, in Baalbek. I'm sure that uh, it has. It has taken an international attention. Um, Hezbollah being able to, uh, to actually go into such uh, a deal is something that never happened before. Hezbollah being able to negotiate with both the regime and ISIS um, has been something that raised a lot of question marks. So I would say that if, uh, if Israel is in the process of already doing a, you know, cliche military training... Um this time they probably raised um the expectations and the burden of it because something um new is happening I can
0: say. but th- this ten day exercise it's it's said to be an exercise uh specifically targeted to scenarios where they get into a, a, a battle against hezbollah, so surely this is a bit different, and it hasn't happened for this long in almost twenty years uh-
1: in two thousand, in two thousand six, as I recall, when the when the war um, started between Hezbollah and uh, Israel, it was not expected as well. The Fronts uh, back then have been calm for quite a while, and then you know some uh, uh, some action from the Lebanese front happened uh, to. Uh, uh, two uh, two people were kidnapped, two soldiers were kidnapped, and, and it started and it created, you know, this whole scenario of war that was not really close to war at first, because everyone thought that probably this is a misunderstanding or something happened. Someone illegally crossed some border at some point in, uh, in South Lebanon, and it was not expected. Um, I'm guessing that within the regional developments happening, Israel has been just planning ahead. Um, so, so has been Hezbollah for the past few months um, Each front has been getting ready for a possible war it, might, it may seem you know, a long shot or not so close on the horizon But it's definitely a possibility here
0: we, We've talked about uh, 2006 That's when Hezbollah got into a uh, war with Israel And more or less emerged from that victorious So I'm wondering, does Israel have a bone to pick with Hezbollah?
1: Um, at the moment, I would say that the only thing that really keeps catching my attention here and there are the raids that Israel keeps you know doing in Syria. and uh, Hezbollah is always involved in these. whether it's um, uh, whether they are uh, trunks and cars of trade, um, whether they are pipelines, whether they are um, we- you know weapons being transferred from a warehouse to another, It's not happening in Lebanon, of course, but as everyone heard and as everyone read, Israel has been targeting um, trucks and uh, and cars operated by Hezbollah in Syria, uh, whereas Hezbollah has been, you know, supporting the Syrian regime and all of the allies in uh, in the ongoing war. This is definitely a trigger for Israel. They haven't been, you know, um, they haven't been targeting Lebanon or cross points in Lebanon specifically, but Syria and Lebanon has been overlapping each other for the past four years. So whatever happens in the Syrian front um, has a repercussion in Lebanon. Um, This may be one of the points why Israel is alerted, why Israel has been um, uh, keeping a red eye out possibly for the development.
0: How does the Lebanese government feel about the rising tensions, how would the Lebanese government react to a clash between the two? Uh, is 2006 any indication of what might happen this time?
1: Well, sadly, um, the Lebanese government doesn't really have, uh, have a direct say in what happens when, if a war was to erupt between Hezbollah and, uh, and Israel, because Hezbollah are always portrayed in Lebanon as the resistance. And the uh, the official resistance that is protecting the borders. So it's not the Lebanese army which is protect, protecting the borders per se. It's uh, it's Hezbollah divisions from uh, from the Party of God protecting, you know, all of these points. The government would surely support because Israel is an enemy to Lebanon and to most of the Arab countries. And so uh, you know the appropriate thing thing for the government to do would be to support Hezbollah in this. Uh, in this battle, the repercussions would be devastating on Lebanon as a whole um, because even if the, pres- the president and all the presidencies uh, supported Hezbollah, not all the Lebanese society will be able to support them as much as they did in 2006 because of the fractions that happened politically and um, religiously, sadly, in Lebanon since 2006 till
0: today. If war were to actually break out, Israel went on record saying that it would be a lot worse this time around. I think they said that they won't take into account civilian casualties this time. So what might happen if it does actually reach a conflict in Lebanon?
1: Um, I would say that there would be a big crisis. Um, People are not that sympathetic with one another in Lebanon. And again, sadly, the political situation and the complexity of the Lebanese society and um, this huge gap between... Muslims themselves um between the sunnis and the and the Shia between you know different people who support different political parties, really caused a certain uh, humanitarian fraction as well. if Israel hit harder this time, I'm afraid that many of the people whether living in uh, in the suburbs of Beirut and dahi or in uh, or in other cities in Lebanon that are to be targeted or even in in south lebanon, they may not find the same type of refuge that they found in um, 2006. So um, humanitarian-wise, this would be a crisis. Uh, the divisions happening on the ground between the Lebanese. I'm afraid that these might be um, uh, these might have a big effect. Uh, political-wise, as I said, the government would still support the resistance um, acting on liberating Lebanon and on keeping the borders um, clean and uh, and organized. But humanitarian-wise, I would expect a big crisis.
0: Despite all this talk of war, possibly the most controversial message to come out of any periodical or newspaper this week was, surprisingly, a cartoon. Unsurprisingly, it came from Charlie Hebdo, the French satirical magazine that sparked anger in the Muslim world in 2015 when they printed a the character of the Prophet Muhammad. Now... The magazine has turned its sight away from Muslims and towards Houston, Texas. Their cover this week shows hands emerging from a body of water, stretched in the Nazi salute, with swastika flags drowning in the background. It's raining in this cartoon, and the caption reads, God exists. He drowned all the neo-Nazis of Texas. That's referring to the hurricane that struck Houston earlier that week. The magazine is made to provoke, but... Many who defended its right to freedom of speech while they poked fun at Islam in the past are now turning back and saying they've gone too far. We have former Congressman Joe Walsh, Piers Morgan, and others in America who supported the magazine have now somehow changed their mind. The question becomes, why do cartoons make people so angry? To answer this question, I'm joined by a cartoonist, Armand Humsi, is a cartoonist based in the Middle East, and he told me why cartoons, although innocent by nature, can be highly provocative.
3: You know, I think it's because uh, a cartoon is, a, is an image, and we we live in a um, in a in a period now, and where everything is visual and. This thing, this thing, really uh, uh, comes comes to your mind, you know, when you see a a drawing, it tells you the whole story, and you can uh, understand it in a few seconds. And when you say it's provocative, you know, there are lots of reasons for this. Uh, first of all, it's I think when cartoonists uh, make drawings, when they are not aware of this specific. Um, you know uh, identities and about specific topics about people. For instance, if I, you know, I think of the uh, the Danish cartoons. If you if you rem- remember them, they were made by by cartoonists who had no, I think, who had no idea uh, about you know uh, what, what what the topic they were talking about. You know, and because of that. Um, I think they 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 make uh, lots of uh, uh I don't know if I call them uh, missteps or errors because they they are just uh, they don't they're not aware of what they are doing. I mean I'm I'm a cartoonist in, in the, I work in the Middle East for now more than 20 years now and I know how to tackle these things you know you never talk about religion just to say that my religion is better than yours. I mean, this is completely nonsense, and uh, you don't do that. I mean, if ever there is something related to religion and you have to tackle it in a cartoon. you do it, you know with keeping in mind that you know you cannot uh, you can never attack someone else's religion like this. i mean it's it's no use because whatever you do, you are not going to uh, uh, to make people. Change their beliefs. So this is why these are topics that leads you nowhere. Mm. And I think in the uh, in the case of, of Charlie Hebdo and in the case of the uh, the Danish cartoons, uh, they didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, they, they took it as if as if it was a topic uh, that had no uh, uh, like any other. And this is why. They had lots of problems with that because you know you don't know what you're talking about and you're making fun of it and uh, you know people will get upset. and uh, I think this is what what happens in, in in the West. I mean, you never hear such such thing going on in the in the Middle East, for instance, mm. knowing that we all live in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area. Uh, and we all understand each other on on this on this specific topic religion and um uh, how c- you can be uh, respectful to religion so uh, yes the, the the thing is they do it um without knowing what they're talking about
0: Armand, you're talking about the uh Jilan's post and uh cartoon from two thousand five and two thousand and six I believe, yes. and now this is Charlie Abdul, but do you think sometimes cartoonists just you know? Draw controversial topics for the sake of being controversial.
3: You know, uh, if, if if you want to be controversial, it's very easy to do it. I mean, you you just you know you just make a drawing that you know beforehand that it's going to be upsetting people. So it's very easy to do it. I don't think I don't think it's because of they because of this. Uh, I think more. It's, for instance, in the case of this particular uh, cartoon from Charlie Hebdo, you know, uh, there, there's a play on words, and uh, it, it couldn't work unless they did it that way, you know. Um, but still, I mean, you can you can always do better than this. I mean, it's it's very it's obvious that. You know, it's very blunt, and uh, they've done it without really knowing what they are talking about. I mean, again, you cannot say that a whole religion is responsible for an act that someone did. This is this is untrue, and it can never be true. So this is why the whole the whole problem of this uh, cartoon is that you know it's in. in uh, it uh, you know it makes all the people um, if you want uh, uh, it's generalizing you know uh, and it, this is not how, how cartoonists work you know a cartoonist cartoonist's job is a, a little bit like a um, uh, like a reporter's job I mean you mean you need to reflect the, the truth. And you cannot just say because I don't know one 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 person made a bad thing that his whole family is bad as well, you know. So mm. it doesn't make sense. Right. So in in this in this view, uh, you know, a cartoonist has to be um, uh, real, and he has to be, uh, and he has to reflect the truth.
0: Are political cartoons slowly finding their limits? You've been doing this for a while now, uh, and how do you find the line? How do you know when you've gone too far? Because your job is to, of course, draw something that's interesting or a little bit of exciting. But when do you know that? When do you know that you've drawn yeah. the line? You, when you've gone past the line? You know
3: when when you cannot uh, when you cannot say that what you are saying is true. I have this this limit for myself. Whatever cartoon I I may I may draw, and at some point it it reflects the truth. Yeah, I'm fine with it, you know. But if if you try to make things that um, if you are if you are trying to portray a a, a lie. It doesn't work because if you exaggerate something, it doesn't mean that you 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 make it you make it, uh, you make it a, a, a lie. It's you have to be um, you have to you have to do your work has to be based on on the truth. Now a cartoonist work is to exaggerate, but you have to know you you have to know when uh, you are exaggerating. A lie to make it a truth, and that it doesn't and that doesn't work for instance, there are people who say that sometimes uh, when they re- react to my drawings, some people may love them some people won't, but even the people who don't love them for, for i don't know any any kind of reason they will just uh, if i ask them is, is it reflecting the truth, and they usually say yes because I know I'm not. You cannot lie in your work because the reader would see it. And I think this is this is the line. And something else is to respect others. You know, if if you are working, if you are drawing, uh, let's say a, uh, a a formal person, a a, a president, uh, you know, someone who is and who is responsible for. Uh, uh, for political decisions, etc. You don't you don't attack uh, you don't attack you don't make personal attacks. You know, you, all your work should be linked to his political work.
0: Also, the nature of cartoons have become uh, global in recent years. You've been doing this for a while. Uh, you know, an example of this is Charlie Hebdo. You know, do, drawing cartoons poking fun at different uh, religions and whatnot, and really. Isn't it the job of the cartoonist to know uh, his or her audience? And how does that affect you now that you know that your cartoons could be seen uh, in Japan or uh, in the States or anywhere in the world, really?
3: You must be aware that these are the drawings that can be seen anywhere anywhere on Earth. And you know that with, with the social media today, you can never know which cartoon can make the... Uh, can can go uh, to the other side of the of the planet. So yes, you you need you need to know um, what 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 topic you are you are uh, working on. Uh, especially especially in this case, religion. I mean, you cannot just say that. Okay, we we have a democracy. I can say whatever I want. No, you cannot. You can say we can say anything you want if it's related to to, to, uh, to politics to uh, uh, things that that cannot uh, you know attack people's beliefs and I I really believe that you cannot change uh, you cannot attack people's beliefs and you have to know what you are what you are drawing and uh, and it happens all the time I mean even in Charlie hebdo as well they attacked the, the home uh, if you want the the all the religions, and that's bad because each time they make a, a drawing related to um, whichever religion, uh, people have negative feedbacks because they know that this is not this is not how they see, this is not how their religion should be portrayed, and it can be really shocking. So uh, uh, I, I think yes, a, a cartoonist has to know what he's what he's talking about. As a cartoonist, you must have a a a minimum level of uh, curiosity in order to have all the information needed, knowing that today information can be gathered, you know, in uh, just minutes whatever the topic you are working on. So, uh, yes, uh, the the reach is is very uh, Hi today, but so is the responsibility.
0: I'd like to thank my guests, Rob Crilly, Luna Safwan, and Arman Humsi for joining me today. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Jeffers, who's recorded and edited all the episodes of Beyond the Headlines. You can find all our podcasts on our website or wherever you get your podcasts from. I've been your host, Nasr al Thank you and goodbye.